If you would pray with me, Father, this morning for your glory and for our joy, uh, we come into your presence as a fellowship, as a body, um, united under the banner of the gospel and united in local church mission for your glory and discipling the nations by being radical followers of Jesus. And so we pray this morning that you would bless that by your presence and Holy Spirit that you would rule the atmosphere in this room. We ask that you would overcome all things that stand in the way of us hearing you and obeying you. And we pray that you would rule as sovereign king of the universe right now over this room tangibly. You already do, but we want to feel it. And so we ask that you manifest that this morning in our midst. And anything that stands in the way, we ask that in your good grace you would crush it. We need you more than we need life. And we pray you would put that on display this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 21 or Acts 26 verse 1 to 32, Paul's public trial and his personal story of God's grace. Paul's public trial and his personal story of God's grace. Uh, before we launch in by way of, of, of really introducing the text, I kind of want a, a rabbit trail around for a moment. And I want to invite you to do something very important. Uh, Pastor Jim talked about it April 9th and April 16th. Palm Sunday, April 16th is Easter Sunday. And then looking forward to 16 verses where we're going to study through the storyline of the Bible and 16 verses where we help put the story together of God's grace in the gospel. These things are important. And they're also grand opportunities for us as a fellowship to practice evangelism. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but we're the kind of church, for whatever reason, I don't know why this is, it just maybe I don't know, I, I can't put my finger on it, we're the kind of church that has a tendency to attract folks uh, who have a tendency, now that, hear this, hear this carefully, I'm not saying this is all of us, I'm not saying this is you specifically, I just recognize about myself, because I'm highly opinionated and very direct, that we have a tendency to attract people who hold peripheral things the same way we should hold central doctrinal, doctrinal things tightly. Now, as we hold things that really aren't that important as tightly as we hold the Trinity. And for some reason, that has a tendency to repel people who are outside the faith. I don't know if you notice that or not, but by and large, people in the kingdom of the world just don't walk in here on Sundays. Now, I want, to, I want you to hear this. This is very important. You hear this from us. We talk. It's the vision of our church, right? For the glory of God, disciple the nations. And we talk about global, global and local, the convergence of those two. Your global ministry is a result of your local engagement of the gospel. Meaning, you and I are to be in the world with unbelievers bringing the good news to them. If we do not have unbelieving friends, we are fundamentally failing at the gospel. I want, I want that to soak in. It is no good to hold the Trinity with a tight fist, yet not preach Jesus to people who are going to hell. 
I want you to hear that, man. We are real good at isolating ourselves and insulating against the world. As God forbid the world touch me and make me unclean. When in fact, Jesus has said, go get dirty. I've purchased the victory on the cross by my shed blood for you and the guaranteed success of the gospel. So go test it. Right? I dare you in the name of Jesus. I double dog, triple dog dare you in the name of Jesus. In the next three weeks, go sit down at Starbucks. Or if you want to, go to the Christian coffee shop. Lost people come in there too. Look at somebody you don't know and take a shot in the dark and ask them about Jesus. I dare you. If that makes you nervous, you may be failing at the gospel. Because the gospel is not just whereby we stay saved. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Meaning there are people who don't believe it, who need to know it so they can believe it. Guess who's going to tell them Romans 10? The beautiful feet of those who bring the good news. (laughs) Right? It's a great old missionary story. This is true. This man came and... He preached to this village and they beat him. They sent him away bloody. And he went down by a tree outside the village and sat down and passed out. When he came to himself, he woke up and he looked around and the village elders had gathered about him. And he thought he was about to die, that they were about to kill him. And when he gained consciousness, they said to him in the language, and he spoke the language, he learned the language, We noticed that you had blisters on your feet, meaning you came a long way to tell us something that must be important. What do you have to say? And he preached to them the good news and they believed. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. You carry the good news. And it's your job and mine to take it into dark places. Meaning there are some peripheral things we need to lay down for the centrality of Jesus Christ and Him crucified so that they may know. And I triple dog dare you to bring somebody who doesn't know Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, and for 16 verses. Because we're going to walk through the gospel, the powerful gospel. It's all about Jesus. And do you believe that it's the power of God to save in spite of you and I? You better, because it is. One of my favorite things to do is to walk into the mosque and greet them in the name of Jesus. Oh, it's beautiful. I like, I like, I like hard things. I like difficult things. I'm, I'm not happy with coffee shop. That's easy. I want to go into the dark recesses and watch supernatural God type crazy things happen. That's what makes me excited. So you don't have to come with me there. I invite you to. If you want to be hardcore, come with me. But I don't even want you to be hardcore. I just want you to talk about Jesus. To somebody who needs to know. Because we're coming up on the most important time of our calendar year. And that's Easter. Christmas is not most important. Easter is. Because without the dead Christ rising, we have nothing. And we celebrate on it. So don't be gone that Sunday. Be here. There's nothing more important for you to do. Ain't no egg you need to go find. You need to be here. And you need to bring somebody with you who needs to know Jesus. Or is looking for a place. Maybe they're disenchanted with the faith. Because all they see is Christians segregated off to themselves and not changing the world. You bring them here. And they will hear the gospel. And they'll have an opportunity to repent and believe. You say, what in the world does that have to do with our passage today? Well, kind of everything. Because in Acts 26, 1 and 32, Paul 
is on trial and he gets his public trial. He gets his shot. And Paul tells the story of the gospel in powerful fashion as he relates to them not only the good news, but how that good news has radically transformed himself. You can see these notes, uh, MitchJolly.com, MitchJolly.com. So go there and check that out. Just as a cool encouragement to you, about 29 countries on the face of this planet listen in to this and read those notes. On a weekly basis. So we talk about global. The world has been affected by your ministry. Don't judge the gospel's power by our two small campuses. Judge the gospel's power by those you've never met. Listening in and reading because of you. That's pretty awesome. So let that soak in for a moment. Not only... Is the gospel going forward by little podcasts and the interwebs and notes on the interweb? But they go there because you're partnering in that work. We just need to up our game locally. We got a global presence, man. We have a footprint. But Paul's global footprint started in the local prison. Meaning we have a local, none of us in jail. Andrew Hackler has found a medium by which he can go to the prison on Tuesday nights. And for some of you men who are, your children are gone and you maybe just have your one job or you're retired, there's a grand opportunity for people with an open Bible to go to the prison on Tuesday nights and quite literally you have a captive audience. They open the doors, you sit at a table and you open the Bible and start teaching and men will come out and hear. And if you respect them and be kind and open the scriptures, you've got an evangelistic opportunity made. And there's something in Matthew 25 about that. Maybe check it out. Right? Because Paul's global footprint started in the local prison as he was faithful with Jesus where God put him. So in chapter 25, 13 to 27, which is the section directly preceding our passage for today, which we're not going to look at chapter 25, 13 to 27, because it is an introduction To the audience, particularly, it's an introduction to the audience, okay? Now, that doesn't mean the section's unimportant. You go, God, why don't you say you believe the Bible and preach the Bible? We do preach the Bible, but when you're reading narrative, not all of it is exegetical gold. And I know those are big words, and I'm sorry. What that means is, it's not a verse-by-verse thing that you pull out, wow, you see the gospel in that. It's an introduction to the audience that Paul's going to be preaching to. And that's kind of important, which is why I want to quickly run over it. Because the key verse in chapter 25, verse 13 to 27, where we see the audience Paul's going to be preaching to, is verse 19, in which Festus relates some of the content that's gotten Paul in trouble. And verse 19 tells us that the problem the Jews have with Paul is this, a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. It's never the death of Jesus that's a problem. Jesus is highly respected in most circles because he's a good teacher. He taught good things. Man, the Sermon on the Mount's pretty awesome if you divorce it from the resurrection. It's never the death of Jesus that gets anybody in trouble, nor is the problem. It's always that Jesus is not dead, but He's alive. He's ruling, 
And He is inviting all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom and be rescued from the dominion of darkness. The implications of that are hefty, right? Because it's cool, Jesus is dead, good moral teacher. But if Jesus is alive demanding that I turn from my ways because they're dead and come to Him for salvation, the implication is my ways are bad, not good, leading in the wrong path, and I must come to Jesus for the right path. And that's offensive. Because the gospel is innately offensive. Because it teaches we are sinners. We're at war with God. We're going to lose that war. But Jesus has made a way, and He is that way. So it's not that Jesus is dead. It's that Paul keeps asserting He's alive. And we learn that Paul is going to make this case again, which he has been doing. And he's going to do it in front of Agrippa and Bernice. And here's his audience. You've got Festus, you've got Agrippa and Bernice and the Jews who are accusing him. In other words, he's the lone salt in the midst of a whole heap of rotten darkness. Agrippa II was the son of Herod Agrippa. Which we read about in chapter 12. And he's the great grandson of Herod the Great. We read about early in the Gospels. Bernice, you ready for some grossness? Is his sister. Bernice is an interesting character. I've got a whole paragraph here and footnoted so you can see the source. Bernice later on strikes up a relationship with Titus, the emperor. And because even the Roman citizens had a sense of morality, realized this isn't good. And there was a public outcry against Titus. He had to put his mistress away. This is the Bernice. It's hanging out with Agrippa, who is his sister. So you got Agrippa, you got Bernice, you got Festus, and you got the Jews trying to kill him. So Paul is surrounded by the best of the worst of the curse of the fall and incest, adultery, lies, false accusations, and villainy. Yet, this is exactly where the gospel of the kingdom is best put on display. Light isn't really light unless it lights up darkness. Light finds its greatest effect in the dark, right? If you add salt to already seasoned food, you make it too salty. We're salty. We have lots of salt in this room. And most of our groups are very salty. Salt has its effect when it gets on blandness, right? This is probably going to gross some of you out. But you ever put a little dusting of salt on top of some fresh ice cold watermelon? See, y'all know. It works. It's glorious. It causes the glorious flavor of the watermelon to burst upon your palate. And kingdom come. Will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. Beautiful thing, right? This... This is Paul, and he's in tastelessness, rot, and darkness. And he's the lone light, the lone grain of salt. And it's exactly where the gospel's supposed to be. Yet it's so easy for us to insulate and isolate from that, because we're afraid we're going to get tainted. Well, guess what? If we really believe the gospel, there is no room in our theology to believe we can be tainted. We believe in what's called the perseverance of the saints. If you're in the faith, you're not going to turn around because you've tasted Jesus. So you know what, dear Christian? Get dirty. Get dirty. 
be among those who are in the darkness. Because that's exactly where Paul is. Just like Paul, when we are engaged in our domains, among some of the best of the worst, we can do as he did. And we can expect powerful results. Because the gospel's powerful. It's not rocket science. It's believing Jesus and acting upon it. Right? It's one thing to hear Jesus, oh, the gospel's powerful. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's study more about the gospel. Wow, gospel's powerful. That's cool. Ooh, another Bible study. Ooh, gospel's powerful. Ooh, justification. Sanctification. I know big words. The gospel's powerful. Man, that's awesome. That's really, really cool. But until that gets over where it's not known, you will not taste its power in other people. Because the gospel is not intended to be hoarded by those who have it. It's intended to be shared freely by those who, for those who need it, by those who have it. And so, Paul is in the situation where his only hope is Jesus. And in those moments, that's where we get to see that the gospel really is powerful. Listen, we live in a place... In, in Western society, where if you put on a good enough show and talk sweet enough and don't ever get direct with sin and the rebellion, you can get a crowd together. But Christians love to be entertained. We got Christian entertainment. We got Christian concerts. We got Christian ease. We got our own language. We speak languages that other people don't know because it's just unique to our subculture. We've got it all. Christian books, Christian romance, Christian adventure. But the gospel is not for that. The gospel is intended to change and transform and continue moving until all peoples have heard and had an opportunity to respond and believe the good news. Matthew twenty four fourteen. The gospel, the kingdom will be preached among all people and then and only then will the end come. That's out of the manual. And so the reality is the gospel is not just to preserve us, which it will and it does. The gospel is intended to be proclaimed to those who need to hear. So what exactly did Paul do? Here's the big idea. You ready? Paul, when put on public trial, tells the gospel story. Through his personal testimony of God's grace. And I'm convinced we should do exactly the same. So what do we see? What does it mean? We've got two main points here. Number one. Paul preaches the gospel by personal testimony. And he tells his background. Tells about his salvation. Tells about his ministry. So let's take a look at those. Paul tells his background story. Notice. In Acts chapter 26, verse 4 through 11. I'll introduce it by simply reading verse 1 to 3. So Agrippa said to Paul, you've permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And he says, I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He's been sweet to the guy who's powerful. Awesome king, awesome king. I know you know all this anyway, but thank you for letting me tell it. All right? And then the verse 4 to 11, Paul tells his background story. Listen to this. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning, 
among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, he's a Southern Baptist, just kidding, he's a Pharisee, I've lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. That's an exclamation point. He's talking with passion. He's not unpassioned. He's impassioned. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He took that from Jesus, by the way. One of my favorite scenes in the Gospels is when Jesus is having a conversation with Sadducees and Pharisees. And Sadducees don't believe there's a resurrection. Pharisees do. He introduces controversy in the midst of them to get them arguing. And then he walks off. Jesus did that. So it's okay for you to do it too. If you're in prison for sake of the Gospel and you know a way to build some holy distraction in, do it. So Paul I don't know why I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. He got that from the Lord. So he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So I, as a Pharisee, was convinced I should oppose Jesus as well. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You remember that? Remember Stephen? Who's there approving? Who's there overseeing his stoning? Paul. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I had passports. I had letters. I had passion and I had death. And in the name of my sect, I went after those Christians and I sought to put them to death. That's my story. Right? So Paul tells who he was and what he did. We just sang a song. This is my story. This is my song, right? Paul's not ashamed of who he was. Because who he was is going to lead to who he now is. And the key component of that is who changed him. So Paul tells his story. He introduces his background. Who he was, what he did Where he came from. But then we see in verse 12 and 13, Paul does something else. He tells his salvation story. He tells how he got saved. So he says here, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority of the commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way. Now, why is it important he says the time of day? Because at midday, sun's fully up. Listen to what he says next. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. I'm on my way to Damascus, doing the job I've been given to do to kill Christians and put a stop to the way. And all of a sudden, at midday, there was a light that was brighter than the sun. And it was so bright that it surrounded me and those who journeyed with me. That's bright light, right? And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I'll go on and read that here in just a moment. 
Paul tells his salvation story. Paul sees a blinding light. It caused him to fall down. And then Paul hears someone speaking to him. Paul heard Jesus tell him, in my notes I said, what's up? Paul heard Jesus tell him, what's up? The gospel, perhaps like you've never heard the gospel before. Now here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus himself preaches the gospel to Paul. Now listen to what Jesus says to him. And we had fallen to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Wow. I thought he was persecuting Christians, the church. Jesus just used the personal pronoun, me. There's a doctrinal implication here. You come after Jesus' church, you come after Jesus. And He takes care of His people. He's God of justice and righteousness. And He will bring justice and righteousness. Read Revelation 19. Justice will be meted out against God's enemies. But right now is a season, an opportunity to repent. And Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's kind of a cool statement. It's uncomfortable for Christians because the goad is a sharp stick put at the back of a harness of an ox cart. So if the ox decided to kick, he kicked into sharp sticks. And he learned real quick, don't kick. Because it hurts. Jesus tells Saul, you're, per- you're kicking against the goads. In other words, it's useless for you to keep running against me. Why? Because God had selected Saul before the foundation of the earth to be his emissary to the Gentiles. Read Romans, or read Acts 9. Saul, you can't fight this, hoss. I've shown up. I've knocked you off your horse. I'm talking to you. There ain't no running. You don't get a choice. You don't get an option. It's hard to kick against the goads, Saul. So it's in your best interest to listen. Jesus isn't mamby-pamby. Jesus isn't asking for permission. You're kicking against sharp sticks, buddy. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Clear as day. No ambiguity. I'm Jesus. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose... To appoint you as a servant and as a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So there's more. I got more to appear to you over. And Paul preaches about that later in Corinthians. Verse 17. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Why? Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul heard Jesus telling him the gospel story. Verse 14, he's accused of persecuting Jesus himself through persecuting his church. Again, verse 14, there's a statement about how hard it is to fight against what Jesus is doing. It's not possible. This is why, by the way, just, I know, I know it's tough for some people to swallow, but when you preach the gospel to those that God and his good purpose has elected to salvation, they will hear and believe. It just is. You can't run from that. I know people don't like that because it's not man-centered. It's God-centered. And we like to be in control and Jesus has no power over me. The Bible just doesn't teach that. I'm sorry. The ruler of the universe appears to Saul says, You're mine. You're going to go to the Gentiles. And Saul goes, Yes, sir. 
And He took Him from death to life. And He used this statement here from Satan's realm to God's realm. Paul, you can't fight this. This is, man, you need the experience of telling the good news to somebody and watching them come to life. You need that. And if you don't have that, I'm so sorry. Because it's supernatural and it's beautiful. It's awesome. Because you realize it's not me, it's that powerful message that just caused the light to turn on. And then you're like, what do I do now, Jesus? And you're like, I don't know, but he'll tell me. Open my Bible and see. Oh, disciple them. Okay, make disciples. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded them. Okay, All right, I can. I guess that means start with Genesis. Here we go, right? And you just do what Jesus says, and it's amazing. Right? You need that experience. I want you to have that at Easter. I want you to have it. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Verse 15. He identifies who's speaking with Paul, none other than Jesus. Verse 16. Salvation and appointment to service and to tell about what Jesus is going to show him. So he saves him, gives him a mission, and tells him he's got other stuff to show him. Verse 17. He promises deliverance from the people that he is sent to. Jesus promises this season of protection. Verse 18, he tells him why he is sent. So Paul says, that's my salvation story. Jesus told me the good news. Rescued me from Satan. Took me to his kingdom. Gave me sanctification. He saved me. Paul weaves together his story and the gospel. Next, we see that Paul tells about his ministry. Verse 19 to 21. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Listen to that. Simple message, right? Performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Repent, turn to God, and start doing the things God says to do. There's your definition of discipleship. Righty? I mean, that makes sense. Nothing complicated there. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. So Paul tells about his ministry. He says, I wasn't disobedient. Jesus told me what to do. I went on. I was going to Damascus. Jesus saved me on the way. So I figured I might as well go on there and talk about Jesus. Not rocket science. Just, here's where I am. He told me to tell. I'm going to tell where I am. And Paul has continued. We see in verse 22 to 23 here. Paul's continued to have God's help. To obey Jesus in preaching nothing but what the Bible says. Look at verse 22 and 23. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to both small and great. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses have said would come to pass. Which is why we want to teach you through 16 verses in the Bible. Because the, the New Testament teaches us this gospel message is also in the Old Testament too. I want you to see the storyline of the Bible. So depending on who you run upon, you can preach the gospel from any book in your Bible. So he said, I've said nothing outside of what's already been written in the text. Here's the great news about evangelism. You don't need to make anything up. He's what well, says right here. And Jesus promises it's powerful to save the lost. Right? Not complicated. Not complicated. We learn here that Paul's continued to have God's help. God has helped me along the way. Preaching nothing but what the Bible says. You remember that quote I read you last week from George Mueller? Isn't that beautiful? I lose my keys. And I start asking God for help, trusting that He will help me find them. And I do. Why? Because God helps His people. Right? 
So God told me to go do this. I've done it and he's helped me. And we notice here in verse 24 and 25 that Agrippa protests and Paul's ready with a reply. As he's saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things and I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for the, he has not done this in a corner. King Agrippa, look at this and this. Do you believe the prophets? He got to the, he got to the key question. Agrippa, do you believe? Because you gotta keep in mind, the Herods were Jews. And the reason the Jews didn't like them and revolted against them because they feel like they had turned against their own nation to work for the Romans. Which is why Herod wanted to worship the Messiah too. You remember back in the Gospels? The Herods were Jews because the Romans were really smart. And they figured, gosh, we, if we put Romans down there in these lands, they're not going to pay attention. But if we convert some people of the land to the Roman system of government and put them there and pay them, people will obey them. So the Herods were Jews. And so Paul knows this and he says to Agrippa, you believe the prophets, don't you? Because he does. He read them. He knew them. And so we ask him the key question. You believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Did Paul say anything about persuading him to be a Christian? Agrippa knew what he was doing. You, you, you're trying to make, you're trying to get me to believe, aren't you? Dang right. Sir. Verse 29. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would that God, not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. I want you to become a follower of Jesus like me, except I don't want you to be in prison. What a great statement. I thought it was crazy. I put you a little quote here from an old school evangelist who's questionable, Charles Finney. But uh, whether you like Finney or not, it's not the point. The point is the recognition... That when you preach the good news and you preach the Bible and you open the scriptures, it's just the way it is. People are going to think you insane. And here's the reason why. Because the gospel is so counter to the world system that when the world system hears something so counter, they look at it and go, that's crazy. The gospel is gloriously insane to those blind to the kingdom because they're living in dead blindness. But to those who have been brought from death to life and from blindness to sight, it's the most glorious news ever because one can now see glory. And then we see verse 26 to 32, Paul works to persuade. Paul is working to persuade Agrippa and everybody listening. Which I've read this to you already, but I'll pick up in verse 30. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who are with him, with sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Paul is working to persuade them by asking key questions, by telling the story, and seeking to convince them. So how in the world are we supposed to obey this? I want to give you four quick points of obedience. And here's the banner over that point of obedience. I want you to use your testimony to tell what Jesus has done, who He is, what He's done, and how people can follow Him. Okay? That's there for you. I know if you can't remember that, it's for you on the notes. 
I want you to use your story to tell what God has done, who He is, what He's done, and how people can follow Him. Number one, tell your background and be honest, no matter how rough or no matter how easy. There are likely going to be a lot of squeaky clean, morally sound people in hell because they trusted their righteousness to be enough. There's going to be a lot of life in prison people in the kingdom of heaven because when confronted with the reality of their depravity, they heard from some faithful preacher who took Matthew 25 seriously that there was one who could rescue them and they trusted in Christ alone and He changed them right there in prison. Just tell your story. Some people think, I don't have a drug rescue story or I wasn't this or I wasn't that. That's not the point. Other people's story is not the point. The point is the gospel. Because squeaky, clean, morally people need to be saved same as murderers. Squeaky, clean morality will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, it's one of the trickiest sins that will get you to hell. The gospel is not moral adherence to cultural norms. As a matter of fact, Christians need to stop using the word morality. Morality's root is mores, social mores. There are a lot of social mores that we adopt that aren't Christian. There are a lot of laws we have on our do and don't list that aren't explicitly Christian. We need to use the word ethics. Biblical ethics. That's a more appropriate term. But morality will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. Saying the right things, never drinking, chewing, smoking, and going with girls who do and don't will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. It's repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And we're going to talk about in October the solas because we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And we're going to do all the solas and then we're going to do the Luther's biography. But it's Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, justification alone. It's, it's, it's the alone. Jesus alone through faith alone and repentance alone. That's how you get in the kingdom of heaven. So whether you've been rescued from murder in a prison cell or from squeaky clean morality, just tell your story, who you were. Number two, drop the G-bomb. If you don't know what the G-bomb is, it's the gospel. And the reason I like to say G-bomb is because the gospel's powerful. It's an atomic bomb that when it lands on a dead heart, it can raise it to life. When it lands on blind eyes, it can make them see. It's powerful. Right? So drop the G-bomb quickly. As a transformative element that changed your life. Tell the story of the gospel woven together with your story. If you've never sat down and wrote out your story and woven it together with the gospel, you need to do that. It's a good exercise, right? Tell your story. I've got a short version and a long version of mine. I'll give you the short of the short real quickly. I was at a youth retreat as a non-believer, as a 20-year-old, invited to go as a chaperone of students or a youth retreat for a church. Figure that one out, right? First time in my life, age 20, I heard the gospel preached. Man on the stage preaching about the cross. And he talked about justification and salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And without my permission, this is the first reason I became a Reformed theologian. Because I started reading my Bible. I was like, well, geez, that's what God did to me. He didn't ask me. He didn't tell me. I heard the gospel. And I literally on the insides, my guts got hot. I started sweating. I started feeling warmth all over me, and I was there for ulterior motives, which I don't have the time, nor do we have the audience for me to tell you why I was there. But in that seat, in that moment, my motives changed. 
I was no longer what I used to be. Jesus invaded. He took over. He transformed me. And within two weeks, I had a man sitting in front of me telling me God had called me to the ministry. Jesus saved me when the gospel invaded this dead thing. You need to tell your story. You need to weave the gospel into it. That's just a small example. You tell your story, right? Weave the gospel into it. Tell the circumstances of how you heard the gospel. What were you doing? Where were you at? What exactly happened? Don't make it rational. Just tell it as it is. The gospel's supernatural. Gospel, gospel comes in dreams and visions to Muslims. It just does. You talk to Muslims who believe the gospel, it's common to hear about dreams and visions. If Jesus gave you a dream and vision, don't hide it amongst a bunch of rational, atheistic, post-Christian things. We have this weird thing against supernatural stuff. The gospel's supernatural. If Jesus showed up to you in a dream, tell it. Tell the story. It's His unique way of encountering you. Because you know what? He's going to encounter somebody else different than He encountered you. He knows every heart that is His. And He will speak to them the way He needs to speak to them through the gospel. Just tell how He did it for you. Tell how the gospel changed you. Tell what you were and what you are now because of Jesus. And then invite people to repent and believe. That's where it gets freaky, right? Because people are like, so I don't believe the right things? What do I need to turn from? I thought I was going the right way. That's where the gospel gets offensive, but that's okay. Don't be offensive in how you do it. Let the gospel do the offense, right? Third, get specific on how the gospel of the kingdom has given you a global ministry of domain engagement and how Jesus gives the day job creative significance as a vocation or as we would like to say, a calling. You know the word vocation's root is voca, which means call. God's wired you for a vocation. Do it with joy and pride and gladness to the glory of Jesus. And tell how Jesus has taken your day job and turned it into a means to preach Him among the nations. That's redemptive. Because dude next to you welding also like, so you mean welding, I don't have to quit my job to go into ministry? No man, you got the greatest ministry on the face of the planet. They need welders all over the world. You could go weld in that country, get paid three times what you're getting paid here to do it. And by the way, as a Christian, preach the gospel. That's pretty cool stuff. That gum didn't know that, right? So tell about how God has taken you into light and used your day job as global engagement and how we engage domains of society as making disciples. Fourth, and finally, be prepared to persuade people. In the parable of the great banquet, Jesus said, and this is quoting the Lord here, And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. To compel is to seek to persuade. It's not begging. It's making a good argument why someone needs to do what you're telling them about. It's not a sales pitch. It's a reasoned argument that helps to pull stones from people's walls of defense. It's some basic apologetics work. Know who you're talking to and what they believe. I know an awful lot about Islam. I know Islam as well as I do Christianity. You want to know why? Because I love Muslims. And when they ask questions, I want to be able to answer their questions. And I want to be able to ask them intelligent questions. So know your audience. Know what they believe and why they believe it. Prepare accordingly, right? you got to understand there are no silver bullets in apologetics or making a defense. 
the gospel is the only silver bullet we have, but having answers to questions and finding answers to questions help to make a way for the gospel to get past barriers and barriers of lies that the evil one has used to blind people. And then finally, 1 Peter three fifteen to 17 but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's what Paul did with his life. Remember, I've, I've tried, we've tried, we've tried, tried to make the point that Paul is not special. Paul's not a super saint. Matter of fact, Paul makes fun of those people in the Corinthian correspondence. He talks about, I'm not a super apostle, I'm just Paul. He just happened to be God's instrument. You and I are no different. Paul's not greater than us. We're not less than Paul. We're followers of Jesus Christ, given the same command Paul's given, with the same powerful gospel that does the same powerful stuff. I think sometimes our challenge is we just don't really believe, maybe. Right? If we did, we would put that to practice. It would change where we go, what we do, and how we do it. So Three Rivers Church, I want you to hear, Paul's public trial and imprisonment was an opportunity for the gospel. None of us are in prison, but you have ample opportunity for the gospel. If not, make it. And if you're ashamed or afraid, let's talk. But be not afraid, be not ashamed. Throw Jesus into every conversation and watch Him sort it out. Your faith will grow as you watch Him be supernatural. You know that? It's one of the coolest things in the world. To watch Jesus do super, I'm super crazy, like beyond natural, like bewitched kind of stuff. You ever watch the show Bewitched? As a little kid, I loved that show. That was fantastic. Some of you are like, I have no clue what that is. You need to repent and believe the gospel and go watch that show. When she would twinkle her nose and like make stuff happen. That's what I think about. I know that's probably bad. I'm sure it's bad theology, but it's to, to, you know, she twinkled her nose and magical things happen. Man, when you preach the gospel and take it into dark places, magical stuff happens. Which is why Lewis wrote the Chronicles to take people with a naturalistic worldview and rescue them from that crap so they could see this is a magical world and a magical gospel. So don't be ashamed of it. Tell it and watch God do magical things because when Aslan is on the move, ice melts, continents move. People have dreams. And he mobilizes armies of the kingdom. That's just in the manual. That's right here in the text. Do we believe that? Let's put that to practice, Three Rivers Church. That's how, that's how we'll grow the kingdom in Roman Floyd County. It's not attracting more people who hold peripheral things, like central things, but people who hold nothing dear and giving them something to hold called the kingdom of God. There's about 70,000 of them in our town, in our county. Let's go engage them and invite them and make it friendly for them. Father, we pray now that you'll help us. Um, It's time to worship. It's time to respond to your invitation in song. So, Lord, I pray that you would plow down barriers. You command us in your word to sing. It is not optional. It's a discipleship issue, so if we won't sing, it's an issue of discipleship. It's not an issue of anything else. So God, I pray that you knock down any barrier to that mess. I pray that you will bring your people to worship like you did in Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And I said to myself, I responded, woe is me. We see you, we respond. And Lord, we've seen the supper, we've seen your word. 
Help us to respond. Help us to respond. Help us to respond. Lord, I pray that you would work miraculously, even in this room now, to mobilize your people. Put lost friends and family members on our minds that need to hear the good news. God, I pray for my friends, because this is recorded, I'm going to call them by name, but over there, that you would give them dreams and visions. They would see and savor Jesus Christ. uh, Let me have the opportunity with an open hand to receive that fruit. Move in this time, Lord. Move us to sing. Move us to obedience.